Admit it, at some point or other in your life, you've gotten choked up during that Sarah McLaughlin ASPCA commercial. But why should the moving image of a dog affect humans so much? Maybe even more than the human image? That's ahead this week on Footnoting History. Hi, and welcome to Footnoting History, and welcome especially to my lovely and talented guest podcaster, Esther, whose knowledge of film vastly outstrips my own, despite the fact that I have wasted a truly obscene amount of time over the years watching movies. Uh, thank you, Christina, for having me on. I think you're way too modest about your film history knowledge, especially when it comes to cute little puppies. How can we not love the cute little puppies, or how can you not love the cute little puppies on, on mm -hmm. film? I guess before we begin, because I have a million questions for you, because this is a very big topic, can you tell me who your favorite dog star is, or if you cannot answer that, who you think is the most important dog star in Hollywood history? Like, who is the most significant as far as bringing the medium of, of dog movies forward? Hmm. Well, in terms of significance, I mean, it, it's kind of hard to say. I mean, if you want to uh, look at some of the earlier stars. I mean, I think absolutely Rin Tin Tin is um, one of the most iconic dog stars. And he was really, I think, as we're going to talk a little bit about in the podcast, he was uh, one of the last dog stars who was really a star in his own right, who, you know, starred in films as as the main attraction, which is unusual. But actually, I'm also biased, of course, because he is a beautiful German shepherd, So, which is, of course, my favorite. So, yeah, he's he's pretty great. In the case of this question, your favorite dog star and the most significant all narrow down to German Shepherd. This is not well, surprising. He's probably, he's probably significant because he's my favorite. So, you know. So, um, I guess we should start off when, when did dogs first start appearing in cinema? You probably first start seeing dogs even when you first get, you know, the invention of cinema because dogs are everywhere. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. Um, I guess in, in broad terms, the rise of the film industry in the early 20th century really coincided with a number of trends in dog ownership. People increasingly owned dogs solely as companion animals, not as workers who had to earn their keep. At the same time, there were more and more breeds of dog to choose from, which is something I talked about a little in my last podcast. The foundation of institutions like the American Kennel Club in 1884 drew attention to physical breed standards while also encouraging dog training, not just for the show ring, but at home too. And even before the AKC, there was a current of humanitarianism in the 19th century that held that no civilized nation should stand for the abuse of animals, and eventually gave rise to institutions like the RSPCA in Britain and the ASPCA in the US. So all these ideas about what a dog was and how it should be treated feed into our discussion of how dogs got their start in film. I would argue actually that our attitudes toward dogs today has just as great a bearing on the types of movies we see them in. For example, the rise of the dog person, increasing pet ownership, sometimes even, you know, to the exclusion of children. People have a, a you know, tiny teacup dog and not, you know, kids. Uh, organic dog food, dog yoga. Well, I leave you to draw your own conclusions, but this left us with things like Beverly Hills Chihuahua and Hotel <laughs> for Dogs. So I, I don't I don't know. Hey, <laughs> Beverly Hills Chihuahua is a film classic. I don't know. It, why it really I... is. <laughs> no, it is a classic, but I think it's it's very indicative of our times. It's, it's a movie that is of its time. So, yeah, as our teaser suggests, the, the bigger question that I see at stake here seems to be why the image of the dog, or animals in general, really, should affect us so much. 
I mean, why, for example, does the sad sack Sarah McLaughlin commercial for the ASPCA make a sniffle when news reports of thousands dying in a landslide may leave us unmoved? Or maybe that's just me. I'm a horrible human being. But, you know, I think it's a, it's a human thing. Um, Louis Teague, actually, is the director of the dog horror film Cujo, has noted that the violence to humans in that film uh, was something he never felt like he had to dial down. But as soon as the rabid St. Bernard had to be killed with a baseball bat, as it turned out, he got very nervous because people just lose their minds whenever anybody hurts a dog. So one of my big questions is really what's going on with that? Well, you know, I'm I'm reminded of that scene with the um, was it a was it a Labrador or a Golden Retriever in Independence Day? Oh yeah, you remember um, that? I forget. Yeah, I do. Yeah, it, well, it was it was one of those you know very friendly dogs. You know the dogs that you know uh, a, a you know a child would go play catch with, and they have that very dramatic scene where uh, they're in a freeway under a bridge, and yeah. he he makes it into like a storage room right as all of the cars with all of these innocent people are just wiped right. away by the alien invasion. Yeah. But the dog made but it. Remember? Everyone's like, oh, thank God, the dog. Yes. Yeah. Everybody cheers for the dog. That's how I felt. I mean, I remember seeing that movie several times in the cinema and, and just being relieved every time that dog found found safety. Yeah, there's this added level of tension when it's the dog. Yeah. I would argue, actually, it's a similar level of tension with kids. Um, I, I feel like in our minds, we, we kind of equate the dog with the kid in these disaster movies where like it's it's like the, the beyond the pale. If they do actually, for instance, like in I Am Legend, kill the dog, which is, you know, I'm still not over I Am Legend, actually. And it was a German oh. shepherd. So, yeah. And it was a German shepherd. So it was like a double, <laughs> double uh, trauma for me. But yeah, it's uh, anyway, it's worth exploring, I think. Um, what is a dog to the audience? Um, which is something that's both personal, I mean, because we think of the dogs that we've owned in the past and things like that, but it's also cultural. What is a dog in our society? Is it a worker, a companion, or a surrogate child even? Why, for example, um, in movies do we see increasingly stringent controls on what dogs can and cannot be shown doing on film and the increasing involvement of animal welfare groups in deciding this? So in preparing this podcast, my research focused mainly on the earlier period of Dogs on Film, since this was what I personally knew least about. I grew up watching movies, you know, like every other child of the 80s and 90s, like Milo and Otis, Homeward Bound, Benji, other movies like that. And I guess we can bring those in wherever they're pertinent. But given the early history of Dogs on Film, which I'm going to talk about today, these newer films, I think, take on new meanings. So for my less than exhaustive research... I've kind of uh, highlighted three main categories into which most dog movies fall. The categories aren't mutually exclusive, and there's lots of crossover. Um, first, there are movies that feature dogs as heroes. This is particularly true of early dog films, like the, the films of Rin Tin Tin, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. He's the main attraction of the films that he's in. Um, the humans are, in a, in a lot of ways, secondary. Next, there are films that are all about the human-dog relationship. Lassie is maybe the premier example of this type of film. The dog is important, but the dog, everything the dog does is driven by its relationships with humans. And finally, there are films that use dogs as a stand-in for something else. It's almost as a, a metaphor. So again, it's, uh, these categories aren't mutually exclusive, but you do tend to see, I think, these, this last category of films, especially in the later period, I guess, of, of cinema. No, I think, I think those are some pretty good categories. Lots of uh, area there to explore. Um, okay, so, I mean, uh, moving ahead, I, I think I have to ask this. Um, in early silent cinema, because uh, the silent era was, was such a big part of early cinema, and it, it lasted longer than what people think it lasted. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, it's, um, 
so is it a case, um, I mean, and I'm talking about very, very early silent films, like we're talking about 1890s or so. Um, mm -hmm. Is it a case where the dogs kind of sort of wander into the picture? Uh, or are they particularly trained to do these scenes? Because I, I remember I would see dogs in some of these um, early short films, because they were all pretty short in the 1890s or so. Yeah, yeah. And you can never really decide how intentional it was or... I mean, obviously there was dog training back then, but, but to, right. to, to perform on film is, an, is another kind of thing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, dogs appear right from the very beginning of the, the history of the medium, um, but not always, you know, as you'd expect. Um, a film historian and curator at the British Library, uh, Luke McKernan, who kept it actually a, a few years ago a fascinating blog on early cinema, points out in one of his, his entries that dogs are really everywhere in early cinema, but they're almost never the focus of the narrative. Dogs appear in several of the early actualities, they're called. Actualities, which are not things that get a lot of you know playtime today, are short nonfiction films that were filmed as events were taking place. So they're not structured and they have no plot. They're usually only maybe a minute or so long. Edison Studios and the Lumiere Brothers produced quite a few of these. So in a bunch of these actualities, you'll see a dog appear at the edge of the frame, distracting the viewer's eye from what's supposed to be the main action. This is certainly true in the Lumiere Brothers' Le Focal de Jatte, which was, uh, came out in 1897. There's this little terrier who's taking care of his business at the side of the frame as workers exit a factory. So he's you know, very much not the point of the, the film, but he's, he's there. Or in Edison's Athlete with the Wand from 1894, which you can actually watch below. So here, the dog's just kind of hanging out while uh, an athlete goes through his routine. Why didn't the filmmaker shoo the dog away? I mean, does the dog belong to the athlete? I don't know. I mean, how would the audience have reacted at the time? These are things that I, again, don't know. But in any case, it seems that these, th these dogs were certainly not trained anyway. I mean, I, I, what, my guess would be that um, it, gives, it gives the viewer something else to watch yeah. in, the, in the same frame. And, and people just like watching animals, I mean, from the very beginning, do stupid things sure. or <laughs> tricks or whatever. <laughs> well, he's not, I mean, the dog in the, the, dog in, uh, in the athlete with wand, I think is, is really interesting because he's not doing anything. He's just lying there. I guess the, the person who set up the camera could have moved the camera a little bit so that the dog wasn't lying there. He could have chased it away. But yeah, I mean, why leave that dog there? I but mean, like, it, I think it's, to us, it's a little bit funny. I mean, because you see this, this guy who's supposed to be the star of the picture, the athlete, and then the dog is just kind of quietly observing but no but the, but the fact that he's like taking care of his bid business i should say you know well, that's the uh, that's in the first one yeah yeah, yeah in the uh, well yeah i'm talking yeah i'm talking about the the first one that you were talking about the, the lumiere brothers film one has to think that maybe kind of it's sort of accidental but why why keep it in there why not why not do a second yeah. shot so yeah so the earliest cinema dogs didn't seem to have any training didn't really um in, in some ways didn't seem to belong if you put that in quotes in in the film. But the earliest narrative film to feature a dog as its star was Cecil Hepworth's Rescued by Rover, which came out in 1905, uh, in which Blair, a border collie and Hepworth's own family pet, rescues a kidnapped baby from a gypsy. You can also watch that below. The whole film was a family affair, as the baby in peril was played by Hepworth's own daughter Barbara, and the dad, who Blair fetches in order to save the day, was Hepworth himself. It's a little over six minutes long, People went absolutely crazy for it, so much so that Rover actually was popularized as a dog name as a result of this movie. It wasn't a common name before then. There are a number of tropes in this movie that will become familiar as we move forward. So we have a dog who is wiser than the humans, 
like the foolish nanny, of course, who loses the baby. And then the dog goes off and tracks the baby down on its own. And he's also in some ways wiser than the dad. So he, he goes back to the dad for help and he tries to get him to follow him, but the dad doesn't understand what he wants. And he sort of scolds him and disregards him at first. Um, so that's the first sort of familiar trope that we see. And again, also the dog is at the end, you know, when the family is reunited, part of the happy family unit. And again, sort of like another child, you know, you have the mother and the dad and the baby and the dog all kind of in a heap. That's, that's pretty interesting. Um, that you say that Rover as popularizing the name, a name for dogs. I'm wondering, it's making me wonder how much influence cinema would later have on just regular dog owners or how they viewed their relationship with their dogs or, you know, what, what are the type of tricks that we can, we can make dogs learn? I've, I wonder how much is, it, it's, it's a little bit of like a chicken and an egg. Obviously we were training dogs before cinema came around, but like just yeah. cinema as a medium of, of popularizing dog ownership of having this kind of emotional relationship with dogs. I wonder how yeah. much that spread. I know? know it's certainly true in terms of breeds. I mean, because for instance, when Rin Tin Tin was at the height of his popularity, German Shepherds were, you know, the dog to own. Later when, you know, Lassie was the thing, everybody wanted a rough collie. And I mean, that really, it still happens today. Um, I just read an article not too long ago about, you know, shelters are really complaining that um, they've had an increase in Alaskan Huskies and Malamutes and things because of Game of Thrones. I mean, because actually Huskies are Huskies are tough dogs to own. They, they have very, very high energy, you know, um, very high prey drive. So if you have a cat or something, it's not a good dog to own. But, you know, people want this this dog because they see it on TV. And of course, you're not going to have like a telepathically, a dog that you can telepathically communicate with if you, you know, get a an Alaskan Husky from a breeder, sadly. Well, even, even that short little film before the London Olympics, you know, where the queen... Uh, yes, the corgis. Yeah, yeah. The, cor the and the corgis were heavily featured. Now, I thought it was pretty common knowledge that the, the queen always had corgis and it was a kind of a tradition right. for them to have corgis. But once she started that little like James Bond-ish thing mm -hmm. and everyone saw the corgis, suddenly everyone started to get corgis, at least in America. Yeah, no, people are, I think this, we can chalk it up to like people are suggestible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I think the early studios also recognized um, the drawing power of canine stars. A lot of the early studios would actually keep a dog on staff who came to be recognized and associated with that studio and who would even do interviews with the press, just like the human stars would. The early studio Vitagraph had Gene and then a, another dog named Shep, who were both border collies, both trained by Lawrence Trimble, who would go on to train Strongheart. Max Sennett's Keystone Studios, later Keystone Triangle, had Teddy the Wonder Dog, who was also known as Keystone Teddy, who was a great Dane mix who appeared with Gloria Swanson in his best-known film, Teddy at the Throttle, which is cute because he gets to drive a speedboat. Another dog, Luke, who I was going to turn to next to analyze in some detail, was actually sometimes identified as Keystone Teddy, even though he was a star in his own right and very obviously a different dog. He was a pit bull. But he appeared in movies produced by the same studio. So Luke belonged to Roscoe Arbuckle, who is perhaps better known as Fatty Arbuckle. One of the shining stars of Slapstick, Arbuckle mentored Charlie Chaplin and gave Buster Keaton his start, but he's relatively obscure now, partly because of a scandal that ended his career prematurely. Like many other stars of Slapstick, Arbuckle had a dog. Well, hopefully the scandal, you know, has nothing to do with the dog, right? Because we... Yeah, given I, the nature of the scandal, I really hope that it had nothing to do I, with the I worry about the dog like I worry about the dog in Independence Day. See, exactly. Yeah, no. The, keep the dog away from all of these sordid Hollywood scandals. Uh, so while the legend had it that Luke had been adopted uh, as a stray, uh, much like Charlie Chaplin's dog, who was actually from the L.A. County Pound, 
Luke was more probably a gift from Arbuckle's assistant to his wife and frequent co-star Minta Durfee. Luke was a comic addition to a number of Arbuckle's films, helping him solve problems, chasing down bad guys like Al St. John, for example. Uh, Luke's skills evolved considerably over the course of his career. In early films like Fatty's Plucky Pup in 1915, he's little more than window dressing. He just kind of sits there. But by the following year, he's performing tricks like ladder climbing, which was his specialty, and hanging from ropes with his teeth. You know, he's a pit bull. He can do it. In 1917, Arbuckle and Durfee divorced, but they stayed friendly, which was fortunate for Luke's career since, remember, he was Minta's dog. He was starting to slow down by that point anyway, but he was in a number of Arbuckle's later films, including Buster Keaton's debut in The Butcher Boy uh, and Coney Island, both in 1917. Arbuckle's later career was, as I mentioned before, tarnished by an infamous series of trials which began in 1921 for the rape and manslaughter of the actress Virginia Rapp. So, yes. Nothing to do with the dog. Oh, thank God. Um, the, yeah, I know. <laughs> the actress who got... Yeah, well. So the first two trials resulted in hung juries, um, and Arbuckle was finally acquitted, actually after a lot of character assassination of Virginia Rapp. It's kind of an early example of slut-shaming, actually. Um, it's an interesting story of its own. But anyway, Arbuckle's career in front of the camera was, was over uh, after those trials. He did later direct films under the pseudonym William Goodrich, but he never appeared in one again. Luke himself died in 1926, aged around 13, which is a, you know, ripe old age for a pit bull. I'm, I'm glad he came out okay. I'm glad he lived a very, like, long doggy life. He did. And he lived his life with his owners, which I think is interesting. I mean, a lot of the huh. later dogs you see, you know, they're, they're owned by either the studio or they're owned by a kennel and they're, they're trained. But Luke was a family pet. Oh, that's so he went to work with his he went to work with his owners every day. So Luke's training was in some ways rudimentary compared to some of the things you'll see Rin Tin Tin do. I know I have to keep bringing it back to Rin Tin Tin. I'm sorry. Luke's talents are showcased particularly in Fatty and Mabel Adrift, which came out in 1916, which is also linked below. Here we see very clearly a trope that will become familiar over the years of dogs in cinema, even again to the present day, the dog as a surrogate child. Fatty, a poor farmhand, and Mabel, the farmer's daughter, get married and go on their honeymoon in a seaside cottage that due to a ridiculous series of events winds up afloat. Luke saves the day and swims for help and then brings them back. And granted, he brings back the Keystone cops who aren't that immediately helpful. The dog is child thing, though, comes across most strongly in a couple of scenes. One where Luke sits down at the dinner table with Fatty and Mabel with a napkin lovingly tied around his neck. People love watching videos of dogs eating like people. I mean, you've seen that viral, you know, the two golden retrievers with the human hands, which is I, actually a little creepy, I think. I, I was creeped out by those videos. I agree with yeah, you. Yeah, it's a little it's a little creepy. But, <laughs> so there's none of that going on, but, you know. But in the other scene, which actually we can psychoanalyze to no end, is of Fatty and Mabel's wedding night, in which Mabel retires to bed with Luke instead of Fatty, and Fatty tucks them both in with a goodnight kiss. How very chaste. How very yeah, I don't nice. really, I don't really know what to make <laughs> I mean, I do know what to make of that, but I, I it's it's either incredibly chaste or like uh, promoting bestiality. I can't decide. I, I can't. Yeah, I can't tell which. Um, so if Luke and the other slapstick dogs are all but forgotten now, uh, some of his contemporaries had better success. The German shepherds, Rin Tin Tin and Strongheart, to whom we will turn in a moment. While the stately shepherds seem to be altogether different animals from the comic relief slapstick dog, they did have one thing in common, which I'd like to underscore here for a moment. They were treated the same by the press. Magazines like Photoplay and Movie News regularly interviewed the dogs. If we put interview in quotes, because, you know, the, the dogs actually um, were made to speak in these, these printed interviews. And they would ask them uh, and questions about their lives and work, and they would respond. Well, that's, Which like, I guess that's pretty... like the equivalent of the of the dogs eating with human hands. No, it's actually it's less creepy than the dogs eating <laughs> with human hands. 
So, I mean, yeah, Keystone Teddy, for example, was interviewed by Photoplay in 1917, and in his interview, he recounted that, quote, I am two years old, and I am from a distinguished family of noble antecedents, although I have a hazy idea that my father and mother were divorced, as I never remember seeing the old man. They began training me when I was a few weeks old. The first thing they taught me was to lie down, the second to keep out of fights. So Rin Tin Tin was, I mean, again, uh, described in really almost human terms, was described as an expressive young actor and as Movie Land's perfect star, quote, who has never been divorced, arrested for speeding, mentioned as a co-respondent, hailed as the screen's most perfect lover, or been the object of a prohibition officer's attentions. Take that, Rock actually, Hudson. I don't know. There's there's actually a rumor. There's actually a rumor that uh, Rin Tin Tin was named as a co-respondent, um, uh, with his owner Lee Duncan's first divorce, you know, which is the correspondent is usually where they put uh, the mistress if there's a mistress. Of course, um, I mean we we have to see this as a as a critique of Hollywood celebrities during that time. Absolutely, that they were permissive and doing all these horrible things. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. So I mean, there there was the the same thing that goes on in the press today, the Hollywood press, that you know we're we're scandalized by what they do, but we can't stop reading it because it's you know <laughs> because we're horrible people. <laughs> Um, and, you know, I think ascribing all of these anthropomorphical kind of qualities to these dogs, I think it, it also shows that maybe dog ownership has become pretty widespread and not just widespread in the sense that, you know, you have you have a farm and you have a couple of dogs. That's that's pretty common. But, you know, it, it's starting to become widespread, maybe even in cities because uh, America is becoming uh, increasingly an, an urbanized place. And maybe when you have more uh, dog owners, you have more dogs, more domesticated dogs. Maybe that just shows how dog owners are thinking about how unique their dogs are and how they have their own distinct personalities. Just like, you know, when we have babies and they can like, they don't even say words or they can't even walk. But already we're like, oh, they have such, pers- they have such personalities. And Absolutely. maybe it's the same thing with dogs. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I think you're, you're right with the, the idea that it's the addition of anthropomorphic characteristics to a dog is... I mean, in some ways, it's something that's always taken place, but I think the medium of film made it so much more accessible to people. And also, it it wound up being something aspirational. You know, so if you see a dog on film, for example, climbing a ladder or scaling a a fence or something like that, you're like, oh, I could, you know, I could train my dog to do that. And we'll see that especially with our next dog, who finally, yes, I'm going to get to Rin Tin Tin in some detail. Yay! So apart from, I know, I'm happy. So (laughs) apart from Lassie and Benji... Um, Rin Tin Tin is probably the single most identifiable cinematic canine to this day. On the other hand, he's also one of the hardest dog stars to know anything about, because there's a lot of material out there, but the material isn't always reliable due to the fact that pretty much since 1918, the first time you see his name, his life is shrouded in legend, mostly courtesy of his trainer, Lee Duncan. Duncan was a gun mechanic turned U.S. Army corporal during World War I, but his first love had always been animals. According to Duncan... In September of 1918, during the Allied advance at San Miguel, he found a single female shepherd with a bedraggled litter of pups in a bombed-out kennel in the town of Fleury. Duncan kept two of these pups, a boy and a girl, and brought them back to the States. He named them after good luck dolls that the French children would sell to American soldiers, a tiny boy and girl named Rin Tin Tin, or I guess in French, that's like Rin Tin Tin or something like that, and Nanette. <laughs> Uh, Duncan originally considered Nanette actually to be the more talented of the two siblings, but she died shortly after arriving in the States of pneumonia, sadly. An alternate version of the story, though, also told by Lee Duncan, suggests that perhaps he and some other soldiers were actually involved in breeding shepherds themselves while they were in France and in Belgium. 
According to this version, a group of U.S. soldiers had come upon a wounded war dog in a German trench, whom they named Fritz, kind of uncreatively, and later bred him with a Belgian shepherd. And I actually kind of buy this story, uh, given Rin Tin Tin's looks. He, I think he might have had a little Belgian shepherd in him, because they tend to be much darker. That's racist, Christina. I'm kidding. <laughs> I know, it is a little... Ra- I, I, I was thinking of that as I said it. It's like, oh, Yeah, I'm a dog racist. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, well, so I wonder... Um, you were, ta- you were saying earlier how no one really knows Rin Tin or like the true story behind Rin Tin Tin and, and all of that. And I'm wondering if, if building up his legend was just like his trainer being kind of loving dramatic stories or kind of being a blowhard. Or was it more of a conscious effort on his part to publicize the dog to sell more tickets or to get him in more pictures? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of, it's another unanswerable question, but it's it's something that there there were two, actually two recent biographies of Rin Tin Tin that were written, one by Elwood and one by Susan Orlean. Um, I think it's Rebecca Elwood, I'm not sure though, uh, and one by Susan Orlean. And they both kind of grapple with how much of this is fact and how much of this is fiction. I mean, it seems that Lee Duncan really, really was devoted to the dog, but it also seems like yeah, he was, I mean, what he mostly liked to do with the dog was tell stories about him. Um, and it did absolutely become part of his mystique. I mean, there's this, everybody loves like an abandoned dog story that comes out good in the end. So I, I think it's, you know, it's it's a, it's a really nice story. Susan Orlean, actually, um, her book is, it was very interesting, but it's something that I think has to be used with caution because she's a little bit, she takes Lee Duncan at his word a little bit too much, I, I have a feeling. Um, but she she makes kind of a good point that Lee Duncan himself was an orphan. And he kind of projected a lot onto his dog in a lot of ways. So there was the, the kind of the story of his life became the story of Rin Tin Tin's life. It wouldn't um, be the first time that like dog psychology is sitting in for human psychology. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Rin Tin Tin or Rinty, as um, he was called by his owner and, and anybody who worked with him, was not a particularly pretty dog. Oh, um, you're rubbing it in. Now. I know. See, I'm I'm I'm. I, he wasn't he wasn't conventionally pretty, let's say. He didn't, for instance, look much like the German shepherds you see today. He was pretty small. He was almost entirely black. And he was so dark, in fact, that sometimes he had to be dusted with talcum powder in order to be lit properly. After the original dog died, Lee actually decided that he was going to start breeding the dogs lighter because he was convinced that the intense lights required to make the original Rin Tin Tin visible on camera uh, wound up damaging his eyes. Huh. Do, you, um, do you think there's some truth to that? I mean, he's he was probably the expert. I think there could be. Because, I mean, the, the early movie lights were so hot and so bright. There, regularly, there were really kind of serious injuries from people falling against the lights. Um, that's actually how one of the later dog stars died, uh, Strongheart, that we're going to talk about. But yeah, so I, I definitely, that could be the case. This story is kind of reminding me uh, a story involving Sidney Poitier. Uh, because, you mm-hmm. know, in, in early cinema didn't have... Um, African-American stars and Sidney Poitier was kind of like the first one and it was one of uh, his first movies where they were trying to light him and they had to put yeah. the li- they had to put the lights so up against his skin that it, it looked like the entire movie the, the the poor guy he was sweating the whole time and the cinematographer yeah. or the director says something to the effect of wow I've never realized how even racist equipment can be because we never we've never had to light uh, black characters sympathetically and we have to, in, in order, in order uh, to fully kind of get their beauty on camera, so to speak, uh, we didn't even have the equipment to do that. And Sidney, Sidney right. Poitier, in that sense, was like the first one to break through in that sense, because he was like a star and they had to light him well. 
But, See, we uh, can add technological racism to doggy racism. Now. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit. I mean, yeah, yeah that's that's how technology advances. You you have to you have new subjects on film, and you have to you have to figure out how to light them because cinema, if anything, is is proper lighting. No, yeah. So I I, I definitely could have could very well have damaged his eyes, and it was a challenge making him um, show up on film. So, but one of the things that was shared by all accounts of of Rin Tin Tin by those who saw him work. And evident, too, if you even watch a few minutes of his movies, is the degree to which he really did, the dog really did seem not to be just executing commands, but to be able to act. His face was really remarkably expressive. Many comparisons were drawn by reviewers at the time to the expressive faces of silent film stars in general. So just as the audience had to decipher the action by the facial expressions and gestures of the human stars with the help of the intertitles, so too did Rinty's face tell his story. Um, as film historian Jonathan Burt, among others, has pointed out, in silent films, animals and human actors are on par. Neither can speak and be heard, and both have to rely on gesture and facial expression to tell the story. Reviewers at the time regularly remarked that Rinty was outshining his human co-stars, and he was often actually paid a lot more than them. Didn't, wait, didn't Rin Tin Tin win an Oscar? I'm kind of remembering oh, yeah. something. This is one of those things. This is part of his legend. Yeah, there was a widespread report. And actually, this came up when, um, if you remember, a few years ago when The Artist came out, and Uggy the dog, you know, the little terrier, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was all there was actually a Facebook campaign to to like get him an Oscar. But, you know, there were news stories that came out that, you know, Rin Tin Tin ruined his chance because allegedly the first Academy Awards, um, the, the greatest number of votes for best actor, according to this legend, was received by Rin Tin Tin. This is something that Susan Orlean repeats in her book. And, you know, but the, the Academy decided, you know, no, it wanted to be taken seriously. You know, they, they were going to give it to a, a human instead, and Emil Jannings won. But actually, I mean, the, the vote counts do survive, and that's not the case. But I think it's interesting that, that the legend even exists, you know, that, that people thought that, you know, a dog could win a Best Actor Oscar. Well, um, speaking of that, um, kind of a burn to the actors, you're saying he was paid much more than his co-stars yeah how so how much was was, he paid um i've seen figures you know of maybe a thousand dollars per film um which is the equivalent of about fifteen thousand today he was uh later put under contract at warner brothers too and he was called actually uh the mortgage lifter because according to the story warner brothers was um was in trouble before they hired rin tin tin and then you know made a few movies with him and he pulled them right out from under so he was really worth every penny and he didn't get in trouble like human stars obviously so oh, but you know rin tin tin how i mean how is he going to spend his money does it it's all for yeah. the trainer right it's not like you know he's not having like doggy caviar well, actually, and there there are press reports that he did, you know, that he had, you know, gold-plated, diamond-studded collars, and, you know, he had his own house, <laughs> and he had... No, it's it's hilarious, yeah. And, I mean, they, they talk a lot, not just about Rin Tin Tin, but also about his wife, right? His quote-unquote wife, um, who was another female German Shepherd who was named Nanette, not the same Nanette who came back with him, but a, another uh, German Shepherd that was procured as a companion for him. Uh, and they had, you know, basically they had a family together and, you know, he was depicted as a family man. That's so interesting because that's that's what they would do to gay stars. 
or or any mm-hmm. star any star in the uh, in the under the contract system in in early hollywood yeah. they would uh, their life was was a matter of public consumption and that was kind of part of their contract that they pimp out their life if you were like a, a a single man or 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 gay and usually usually those two things intersected you know they they set you up with people to go on dates and you had a wife and you had you know a beard or what have you so that whole kind of publicity machine behind uh, Hollywood stars, it's interesting that they had to also do that with the dog because it's just a dog at the end. And yeah, and it actually, and it wasn't just Rin Tin Tin, as we said. I mean, the the earlier film dogs like Luke and Teddy also gave interviews. But actually, there was another German Shepherd in Hollywood at the same time as Rin Tin Tin who um, enjoyed really the same popularity. Most people today, though, have never heard of Strongheart or Flame or Peter the Great or Fangs or any of a host of other German Shepherds who were working in Hollywood between the First and Second World Wars. Strongheart, though, is uh, the one that really stands out as a rival to Rinty's fame. He was a former police guard dog, recently imported from Germany. Strongheart, whose real name was Etzel, was not a particularly nice dog. He was, however, very intelligent and highly trainable. He had been adopted by the director Lawrence Trimble and the screenwriter Jane Murfin. So like Rin Tin Tin, Strongheart was a dramatic canine actor, no comedy at all. Strongheart is much lesser known, possibly because only one of his films survives today, The Return of Boston Blackie, which came out in 1927. He died in 1929 after falling against a hot light on set. But he does live on to this day as the face of Strongheart brand dog food, which is like the lowest bargain basement, like disgusting, like don't ask what's in it kind of dog food. Um, But he's still there. I actually, I was, I was at Walmart the other day and they sell it. They don't, they won't actually sell it at PetSmart because it's too like lowbrow. I mean, his other legacy actually is, um, there's a book uh, by Jay Boone called Letters to Strongheart, which is interesting. Jay Boone was a friend of the couple who owned Strongheart. And after Strongheart died, he wrote letters to Strongheart, you know, about Strongheart's kind of good nature and his, well, I mean, one of one of the quotes from it, uh, which I pulled out because I was thinking, you know, that's kind of a, a nice way to sum up how dogs on film are. There was no barrier between his good inner nature and his outward manifestation of it, um, hmm. which, yeah, which really kind of puts a block in, in the argument that dogs can act. I mean, the idea that he's not acting, he just, he's being. But yeah, the the book Letters to Strongheart actually became uh, a spiritualist classic, came out in the 60s, and um, it's been, it's never been out of print. So Rin Tin Tin, he kind of, even after the original Rin Tin Tin died, um, I mean, it's not like Rin, the, the Rin Tin Tin machine suddenly stopped. I mean, like, there were still, like, tons of Rin Tin Tin movies, right? Yeah, I mean, we had several generations of dogs, uh, which may or may not have been related to the earlier Rin Tin Tin. Because they do seem to have gotten, again, to be a doggy racist, a lot lighter in later in later films. But yeah, there were there were kind of endless spinoffs and sequels that were produced uh, during the the 60s up through even the 80s and 90s. I mean, does, do you remember actually Rin Tin Tin Canine Cop, which was on TV when we were, I don't know, probably 11, 12, something like that? I do vaguely remember it, yes. But again, it's, you know, German Shepherd assisting a guy. So, But the <laughs> silent films made with the original dog is... They're, they're kind of a different, uh, different beast from the later incarnations. There was a common thread running through a lot of, of Rin Tin Tin's movies, which I noticed particularly because it's something that really runs through centuries of human thinking about dogs. It's certainly one that I've spoken about a bit in my podcasts, the tension between wilderness and civilization, wildness and domestication. So you take as an example uh, Rin Tin's breakout film, Where the North Begins, which came out in 1923. Lee Duncan wrote this screenplay specifically as a vehicle for Rin Tin Tin, and it shows. 
The plot basically runs a pack of wolves adopts a lost puppy, Rin Tin Tin, who will grow up to be a deeply conflicted individual. He loves the wild, but he also wants to be a good dog. His doggy nature comes out when he befriends a trapper and helps him in his struggles against his trading nemesis, who is also after his girlfriend. And then all seems right with the world until the dog is falsely accused of killing a baby and the trapper is ordered to shoot him. The dog runs away and later kills the trapper's arch nemesis and is reunited with the hero and heroine who all live happily ever after. Actually, Rin Tin Tin actually ends up with a, with a love interest and family of his own. That sounds now, very, very familiar to me as a medieval historian. It sounds very historian. familiar to, to medieval historians. It should. You know, <laughs> in an earlier podcast, I mentioned the legend of St. Guinefort uh, and the, the Welsh fairy tale that it recalls. You know, the, the prince comes back and finds the nursery in disarray and, you know, there's blood everywhere and he can't see the baby and he sees the dog. He jumps to the wrong conclusion, kills the dog. And then, of course, it was the fact that the dog had, um, you know, killed a snake to save the baby. But of course, and story... Rinty has a much better ending than St. Guinefort. I don't know how to pronounce his name. But... Yeah. No, I mean, absolutely. He doesn't. Uh, we have a happy ending here. We don't see we don't see Rintintin getting shot or beheaded or, you know, anything else. So. But it actually, it has a lot of the same elements, though. You have the good dog who is unjustly accused, who nevertheless forgives his accusers and gives them his love. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember... Best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.